seems to me that there are probably about two ways to enjoy a stained glass window. If you can get close enough, which you can't in any of the cathedrals in Europe, um, if you can get close enough, you can examine the intricacy of each uniquely shaped piece of colored glass and inspect the meticulous craftsmanship which with, with which they're joined. Or you can stand back and let the sun shine through all the pieces together, bringing the entire window, window to life as a glorious whole. As I've preached over the past several weeks, excluding last Sunday, I've been looking at the book of Romans up close, examining some of the particulars of the doctrine that's developed in this letter, of which there is a lot. But this week, I'd like to, I'd like to stand back just a bit. Because this week's reading is not primarily about particulars, although there are some. This passage is about a biblical pattern, a glorious whole that every particular is pointing to. It's the culmination, really, this passage of an argument that St. Paul began way back in the beginning of chapter 5, where he wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And as we've looked at these intervening passages, we've seen that there's a lot going on between there and here, that through Adam's disobedience, the curse of sin has been woven into the fabric of the human heart and the good world that God created. And now every day we struggle against the result of that curse. That Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh, destroyed the power of sin, something that the law could not do, and that with the Spirit of Christ in us, we've actually been and are being set free from sin's power. That what humanity, along with all creation, groans for, its original glory to be restored, is already glimpsed in us who have the first fruits of the Spirit who are Christ's own. That we have actually become the rightful heirs of that glory because we've been adopted as God's own children. And finally, that suffering in this world and in our individual lives must, must be understood in light of that glory. Yet to be fully revealed and realized. And that ought to bring us hope. And hope does not disappoint. So what Paul's doing in this passage is really echoing and elaborating his words on suffering and hope, making a closing statement that rests entirely on a biblical pattern. The power of one big idea 
stated in four words. God is for us. In case you didn't catch that through the Gentle and Lowly series and all the ensuing sermons, God is for us. <laughs> and therefore, nothing can be against us. Have you ever had someone in life that you just knew that with every fiber of their being, they were for you? No matter what. I have. And Lauren and I have people in our lives like that right now. And it's a remarkable, remarkable thing. It, it changes you. It strengthens and encourages you. And it brings you joy and hope. Jonathan Edwards, one of America's most important and original theologians, and interestingly, I was reminded of that this week, interestingly, the grandfather of Aaron Burr, who infamously shot and killed Alexander Hamilton, Jonathan Edwards famous, famously said, all doctrine is application, and all application is doctrine. In other words, what we fundamentally believe about God affects everything about how we live. And how we live is evidence of what we fundamentally believe about God. By the way, it's, more and more studies are showing that people who are, um, who are deconstructing their faith and walking away from the church aren't having a problem with what the church teaches. They're doing it because they believe the church doesn't believe what it teaches. And I would have to say, looking on from the outside, I'm, I'm not completely out of dis in disagreement with that. But what we fundamentally believe of God will affect everything about how we live, how we, how we manage our fear, how we deal with insecurities, how we handle adversity, how we wrestle with a guilty conscience, conscience how we relate to people, how we view our work and so on. It just it permeates everything. And what Paul wants us to fundamentally know about God is here. He is for us. In fact, that thought, he is for us, is the connective tissue in all of today's readings from, from Nehemiah, where God's eager desire is to flourish Israel despite their rebellion. And in fact, the whole story of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are God restoring and prospering Israel after 70 years of exile in Babylon. He loved them so much and was so for them. In Matthew 14, Jesus' kindness and compassion on the crowds pressing in on him, healing and feeding them. In, in, in the psalmist in Psalm 56 saying, you record my lamentations, put my tears into your bottle. Are not these things noted in your book? What, wh whenever I call upon you then, shall my enemies be put to flight? This I know, God is on my side. Crescendoing to Romans 8.31, where Paul asks rhetorically, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? And it's here in the last third of Romans 8 that Paul examines how we can know this is true, how we can know God is for us. There, there are a bunch. I'm going to focus on three, and the first one is this. Foreknowledge. In verse 
20, verses 29 and 30, we read, For those whom, God, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's at this point, right now, where we could easily get bogged down in the particulars of what Paul is writing here. I mean, whole forests have been felled attempting to explain what theologians call the order salutis, the, the order of salvation, largely drawn from this list, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, and with a few other nuances mixed in. You could do that. But what I'd like to do is step back and look at why Paul gave us this list. And I believe it's this. It's because God foreknew that he predestined, called, justified, and glorified because of this. Because of his foreknowledge, we know that God is for us. But, but because foreknowledge is, is cardinal here. It's, it's the hinge on which the door springs open to us of these two other magnificent things. We can look at the word and think that foreknowledge simply means foresight, that God has prior awareness, that he's cognizant of things before they happen, and that he knows all that will come to pass ahead of time. And that's entirely true. But that understanding is too limited for what Paul's describing here. Because throughout the New Testament, whenever you read the verb to know, it's the Greek word genosko. Here it's progenosko, which literally means before know. And it means much more than awareness or knowing about someone or something. You know how we will say, oh yeah, I know that guy when we've met them like once. This is not that, or knowing about someone or something. It's much more than cognition or kind of disembodied academic knowledge. In a gospel reading from Matthew 7, just a few weeks ago, Jesus says this in verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them lawlessness. But this disavowal doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know about that person. It means something totally different. It means that he didn't know them experientially and intimately. Jesus didn't know them relationally, and therefore it will be as if he did not know them. In Genesis there's a place that says Adam knew Eve. It wasn't a hookup. It wasn't like, hi, I'm Adam. Couldn't help noticing you over here. Do you come to the garden often? I'm sorry. That makes me think of the, the best Christian pickup line ever uh, that I've heard is, hey, baby, your Bible sure would look good on my nightstand. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, it was not that. It meant that Adam knew her through intimate experience. It meant that Adam was bound to her. It's this profound kind of knowing that's the basis for two becoming one flesh. And it's why historically Christians have 
treated sex not as prudes, but as evidence of this kind of knowledge and a testimony to it. So when the Bible speaks of knowing, it means relating intimately and deeply, knowing through experience. And what this means in Romans 8 is that before anyone knew of us, any one of us, God knew us. He loved us. He was intimately invested and utterly given over to us. What's more, Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So all of this foreknowledge was true before the foundation of the world. And if that's the case, that even before the foundation of the world, God knew there is something, there's nothing, there's nothing we can do to earn his love because he already determined to love us. God can never love you more. And he can never love you less than he does right in this moment, right now. He can only love you perfectly as he does. There's nothing that we can do to disqualify ourselves from his love because he already determined to love us. It means that God is near, nearer to us than we are to ourselves. God is in every circumstance of our lives and our deepest thoughts and feelings. God foreknew, and because he foreknew, it says in this passage, he is for us. In verse 28, we also read these words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things has big implications. Because when the Bible uses the word all, it's not hyperbole. You know what it means? All. It informs how we respond both to the good realities of our lives and also the bad, how we respond to life or death, angels or demons, present or future, height or depth. In all things includes the good, health, relationships, meaningful work, comfort. And if you believe God works through good things for your good, it causes you to go life, to go through life with gratitude, literally thanksgiving, eucharisto in Greek. 
And this thanksgiving brings a realization that all good comes, not because we deserve it or because we're entitled to it, but as a gift. But do you know what? The surest way to be discontent with your life is to live with a sense of entitlement, a sense that what you have is only what you're supposed to have, that you deserve it. And by the way, you actually deserve more, if, let's be honest. But have you ever met a truly happy, entitled person? You haven't, because they don't exist. This is why we are so incredibly unhappy in our country these days, I think. The result of entitlement is always discontentment, disappointment, and misery. It's the difference between someone who has few resources but is generous of heart and someone who has lots of resources but is miserly of heart. One of the hymns we sometimes sing as a processional, God of grace and God of glory, addresses this very issue. By the way, it was written in the late 18th century when this was actually a view that people had addresses this very issue and the misery that it brings. The verse, verse three starts out this way, cure your children's warring madness, bend our pride to your control, shame our wanton, selfless, our selfish gladness, rich in things, but poor in soul. One person believes that they have what they deserve or they demand more and they're miserly, which is, by the way, where we get the word miserable comes from that. Versus the person who believes that everything they have is a gift, nothing is deserved, it's always God at work and therefore they can always be thankful and generous. Hopefully that's fairly easy for us to see. But all things also includes heartache and suffering. Verse 35 lists trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Our fallen world is full of harsh and difficult and sometimes devastating realities. I spent a good part of my afternoon yesterday on the phone with my mother, 89 years old. Two weeks ago, her husband was taken to the hospital, or she was taken to the hospital two days later, and because they were both ill, they never saw each other during those two weeks. She was released to go to rehab, and he was going to be released, but took a turn for the worse the night before last and died within just a few hours. So my mom was grieving, not just his death, but over the unfairness of not having the opportunity to say goodbye. They were just 100 yards apart. Whether or not you're a Christian, these realities will happen, and we will all experience them, all of us. In the parable of the wise and foolish builders in Matthew 7, the one thing that they have in common is hardship, rain, wind, and floods. 
Paul doesn't say that God is resolving every difficult circumstances or that hardship will be taken away. He also doesn't say that everything is a blessing in disguise or that every cloud has a silver lining or that bad things, if you endure them long enough, will eventually become good things. No, the bad things are bad things. It says in all things, even the truly bad things, God is working for good through them. So what's the, God, the good that God is working? His will. And what is his will? You may want to um, write this down because I'm about to reveal to you what God's will for your life is. Paul says it right in this passage. It's that you be for, be, it's that you be you and I, I'm going to put myself there too. It's that you and I be conformed, you know what it says in verse 29? To the image of his son. That is God's will for your life. That is the good that God is working. It means that even if you're not fully aware of why you've encountered suffering or heartache, or how, how it will be resolved, or if it will ever be resolved, this side of eternity, he is nudging, he's working good toward that end, conforming you and me to the image of Jesus. God never, ever, ever allows suffering gratuitously or callously or capriciously. In fact, just the opposite. We have a God of compassion who feels with us, who has actually suffered for us. In the psalm that we read today, the psalmist is under attack from his enemies. He's suffering, enduring hardship and dismay. And in the middle of his lament, he says, by this I know that God is on my side. <laughs> Throughout the psalm, he says that God hasn't forgotten him, that he hasn't overlooked him during his times of suffering and strife. In strife. It says in verse 9, uh, verse 8 rather, record my sufferings, list my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record, then what, he's, then what this says in, in Hebrew is you have put my tears in your wineskin, in your bottle. In other words, God remembers. He stores every tear that's been shed, every moment of sadness or hopelessness. It's stored in a bottle, recorded in his book, he remembers every moment of despair, and he will not forget. In fact, all of these things will themselves one day be redeemed. John Newton, who wrote the remarkable hymn, Amazing Grace, and knew a thing or two about hardship and grief, said, and I don't particularly like this, but know it to be true. John Newton said, everything is necessary that God sends. And nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary that God sends, and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. What this means is, if God has withheld something, we don't need it. And it also means that even if we feel like life has been sullied or ruined by a particular bad thing, God will use it to work his will, which is always for our good. He can use it to mold or to teach or to enrich or to even to humble us. But always with the goal of being conformed to the image of his son. Because that is his will. 
Every human parent, or at least every wise one, knows that there are some difficult things that must be allowed in the lives of their children. And some, from the child's perspective, some desired good things that must be withheld from their children for their good. How much infinitely more does the creator of the universe, who is a father himself, possess this wisdom? By the way, just one caveat here, so we're fully aware. The aforementioned wisdom does not in any way apply to grandparents. <laughs> we do not receive this. I cannot state this too emphatically. Finally, we know that God is for us in this. He gave up his own son for our good. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus Christ experienced and endured everything mentioned by Paul in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And amazingly, when God allowed these things to come, come upon his son, he worked them out for our good. And when these things happen to us, God is doing the very same thing. Paul's not telling us to gloss over or deny the reality of hardship or have more faith or, 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 or name it and claim it. No, hardships and heartaches are real and they will come. And some of them are devastating. And what Jesus offers is not the promise of better life circumstances but the promise of a better way through life circumstances. We can be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9, hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We know this. Jesus Christ experienced and overcame all these things, every hardship, so that we would never be separated from the love of God. And that will never yield to anything. And he has left us a tangible, tactile, flesh and blood reminder of this in the Eucharist, this Thanksgiving, as we gather around his table at his invitation his own body broken, his own blood poured out so that we could know without doubt that God is for us. Thanks be to God.